To really understand technology, you have to live by it. And to talk about business, you must have experienced it first. In this show, we do both. But we also get backstage and enjoy the crack with other entrepreneurs with whom we compare experiences and learn about their secret sauces. Welcome to the Tech Post with me, Richard O'Donnell, and my co-host, Tony Frawley. Hello, good morning once again to uh, this month's podcast, Tech Post podcast. Um, this is a bit different this time. We're doing this session via Zoom um, because of the current restrictions, but we're hoping that the sound quality is as good as ever. I'm delighted to have two extra people to join Tony and I this uh, particular session. Uh, the first I'll introduce is uh, Dave Keary, who is Ireland's answer or Limerick's answer to Rory Gallagher and has been for many years now. To embarrass him a little bit and also I have one of my oldest friends Martin O'Carroll also from Limerick so four good Limerick men uh, to do this week's uh, Tech, po Tech Post podcast. Um, so just to kick off Dave um, as, I, as I mentioned I think you and I first met when we were about 14 and I have a similar haircut to that time at least I'm trying. Yeah well yours, you're, yours is a bit different. You've, you've managed to retain your, your bouffant very, very <laughs> admirably there, Richard, I have to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you, you I remember drive, you... You used, to, you used to drive the girls crazy in the... Liberal oh, yeah, still do, Dave, still do. Um, I remember you coming to our house one time. We used to have hair down our back, the two of us. You had a parka jacket that had seen better days. There's an army, one of these army surplus things. It was raining outside, so the jacket stank. And you yeah, came yeah. to our door and uh, I was inside. My mum came in and said, there's the most awful looking guy at the door, says he knows you. And you had, you had the hair, one of these kind of, the hair came down the front and over your eyes. So you were barely peeking out through the greasy hair. And uh, I said, that's not an awful guy. That's Dave Keery. I was very chuffed to be hanging around with Dave Keery at the time. But I remember you had, uh, you were listening to Led Zeppelin. Mm. And so so was I, but I was a status quo fan, as you were slagging me about earlier there. I remember you were trying to teach me 12-bar blues on my acoustic. Yeah, I, yeah. Wanted, I wanted to be Rick Parfit, or what's the other guy? Um, Rossi. Rossi. Rossi, Francis Rossi. Yeah. But I, the best I could do was, the um, best I was able to do was Knights in White Satin. I went Heart of Gold as well, Martin, right? Well, Knights in White Satin no, would, be, would be a good one to have. That's, <laughs> that's the romantic charmer in you. <laughs> And there's an interesting story I hope you'll tell us later to do with um, uh, you meeting uh, one of your heroes from Led Zeppelin, but we'll maybe go into that in a, little, in a few minutes. Um, okay. okay, as I say, great to meet you. We've been trying to do this for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and the, the, there's many, many facets to Dave Keery. You're not just a musician, if you like. Uh, you're also a producer and have your own production studio in Limerick. That's right. Uh, Red Door Productions. So, yeah, I set that up. Um, kind of in the back of the house in the utility room originally, or the futility rooms we used to call it, and in about 2000, thereabouts, 1999, 2000. Um, so I was kind of coming to the end of my tenure with Michael Flatley with Lord of the Dance. So I was with that for four years <clears throat> as a musical director and musician on it. And uh, we kind of knew that that was going to come to an end. So I was always interested in the recording and I kind of gradually picked, you know, started off with small pieces of gear and little standalone hard disk recorders and then um, you know business grew demand grew and I just felt I had something to offer in the locality um, with with my experience I suppose and as a player and with music ideas and production ideas which is really 
core, I think, to recording and the, the, the process of record making is as much about the creativity and the ideas and listening to people. And like any business, is being a facilitator. And anyone can have the infrastructure, as we all know. You know, you can have, you could have a factory, you can have a whatever medium, um, but you have to have the, I think, the skill set and the, the right people um, as a resource, you know, to drive it. Yeah, Dave, you're well connected. I'm interested, Dave, to wonder was was there always a uh, and at that inner entrepreneur in you from a young age? Did you always want to charter your own course? Well, I suppose that I wouldn't. I wouldn't have considered myself an entrepreneur, and I still probably don't, Bobby. Just by by happen mm. chance, as I say, it's. Uh, I mean, as a musician, first and foremost, I suppose most musicians are. Exactly. Yeah, I was thinking that by default are kind of in entrepreneurs as far as we're self-employed. Mm-hmm. And there, it's a really, really tough business to survive, and there's absolutely no mistake about that. And particularly, no more so than 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 now, obviously the the times we're in. Um, so it's a very tough business to survive in. But I think you you really you have to multitask and adapt. Um, and it's it's I remember somebody said to me once, if you can't make a living or a reasonable good living of what you're talented or good at, you're doing something wrong. And they're absolutely right. So I mean, there's unfortunately there's it's a it's a business where you get. Uh, people who are kind of artists and might be precious about donning another hat, you know, um, in my case, it was the, the studio side of things, um, which you can spend as much time on the keyboard and the mouse more than you do on the fretboard of the guitar, which can be frustrating. And that's a balance that's tricky to get. And I, I can expand on that a bit later, but the, yeah, so it just, as the, as the demand grew, I built a studio more, proper uh, design studio in the back of the garden. So that was probably my first kind of foray into being into the business side of it insofar as, you know, taking out a remortgaging and taking out a loan on that and taking, uh, I didn't feel there was a risk because I, I reckoned, you know, I could keep my overheads very low and there still are, you know, utility costs could be bundled in with the, with the house and, you know, uh, so forth and without having to take the risk of leasing or taking a high, high risk. So uh, from that end, the, the, the business side of it has been fine, and I, I've, I've learned learned the ropes of of like most business people doing your tax returns and you know boring all, all the fun stuff, Dave. All the yeah. fun, all the boring crap that we all love to, to do. So, Dave, is uh, Red Door Productions is that your day job? It's, well, it is now. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely, did right. Yeah. Um, well, it's been pretty much the day job, kind of as as a balance for the last. Since I came off the road of Michael Flatley, I was, I was still doing a lot of gigging. Uh, I was with Brendan Boyle for a good, good few years and on and off when he came home and then doing a lot of other local uh, stuff. And then I got t- tied in a good bit with them with this producer, Simon Franklin in the UK, who worked on the Titanic and um, Michael Jackson and Jesus, um, Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston, those people and moved back to the UK. And he heard my playing on another project I was working on and I did a lot of albums with him over the UK in pretty high-end um, studios and air studios and Abbey Road. So, so I had, I was juggling the studio going in the whole at the same time and I think that was um, imperative to me and for me and still is to maintain a balance of the studio, which is bread and butter. Yeah. Uh, something I love doing, but it can be a toil sometimes, particularly if, you, if you're working with some artists who might be a bit challenging um i don't mean that in a personality way but they mightn't be prepared and that's one thing i've learned in the last 10 years is not to accept work where people are just not prepared because they're wasting their money and they're wasting my time 
and you know people think with technology oh you know the studio can fix it and technology can fix it and my vocal tuning is pretty crap and my drum timing is out <laughs> but everything everything can be done after and I just I've no time for that because that's not that's not how music should be for me you know it's um I'm kind of lucky enough to come from the old school uh to see how it was done and to have taken part in 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 the in the process um, has it has it changed, Dave? Um, I'm just wondering with all these new home recording equipment, you know, these four track things you can have in your bedroom and that. Yeah. Are people coming in? Are people coming into you with demos for them now? Whereas in the past they might come in and say, "We want to make a demo." Yeah, that's that's a very good point, Martin. Yeah, and like I had someone come in the studio the other day, and he was he wants to be to kind of take the project further. He'd done a lot at home himself. And in his own setup, and I have to say, it was a really good quality. It was very good. So I can certainly bring it to the next level and finish it and get other other musicians, which he wants uh, to do to to augment the recording and the project. But it is, it's. I mean, for the most part, a lot of what I do is is is, is art. Is people coming in, singer songwriters who don't want the hassle uh, of demoing um, or recording. Some of them do in a very, you know, I mean can use garage band i mean and, and as a medium and 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 it is absolutely incredible what you can just you could get a pretty crappy laptop you would have for sorry should be <laughs> or whatever for it's all right with, we, we with, with a basic piece of software and uh and a, and a mic and an interface and off you go it is absolutely astounding of um i suppose liberating in one way of, of and facilitating where people don't have to spend huge amounts of money uh going to a studio but I mean that has that has the other side effect then as well, where everyone thinks they're a producer and everyone thinks they're an expert, mm. and you you need experience and you need you need the idea is the most important thing in any of this, and, and with songwriting and with the success of artists is ideas and his songs and his material, that is that is the most essential core thing you have to start from. Um, but as in terms of the technology, yeah, I mean it's it's as we all know, I mean it's it's incredible, no more than. You know the, the computing power of the space shuttle in 1969, or, or, or Apollo missions. You know that we have, you know, as much power in this thing. Now yeah. it's the same, the same recording where you would, have, you know, to have a 24-track machine, an analog tape machine, and a desk and mics back in the day in the 70s, 80s, even early 90s would have been in the six figures. And now you know it's condensed into a laptop and. Uh, it's fantastic that you can and the, the, the whole the whole file exchange and collaboration and particularly now since COVID, it's a that's a godsend, but it has its drawbacks as well, like like any online um, discourse, you know, or, or collaboration rather. Um, I, I'm just thinking for a minute, a minute there. Um, I've got um, uh, grown up kids now, <clears throat> excuse me, in their twenties, and uh, one of my kids often we get in the car and I like the journeys because I say, well, you, you put on your your new music. I'd mm. like to hear some new stuff because I find that you, you keep listening to the old stuff because that's yeah. the stuff you like. But um, it's interesting. Um, the last session we had in the car, Josh and I, and he said, Dad, have you heard of The Cure? Have you heard of The Cure? And I thought, mm. I've heard of The Cure. And he says, have you heard of Talking Heads? And what's very interesting is, and now he knew what he was doing. He was, he was, he was having to laugh a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's the music they're listening to. And his comment was that current stuff, by and large, because it's been produced by a computer mm. or produced by 
some gizmo, either, a, you know, the likes of, a, I suppose, Garage Band you mentioned, um, is, is throwaway music, if you like. Yeah. You know, well, um, yeah. Compared, compared to real musicians sitting in a studio such as yourself. Absolutely. Um, so it's interesting that those, um, Tony, I said I wouldn't say the word interesting in this podcast. Now I've said it twice. Yeah, I was just saying, I was just thought it was quite interesting that you'd it's use that curious. word a few times. It's curious <laughs> that uh, that um, that age group are going back to what I would like to call real music without sounding like a fuddy-duddy. But something yeah. I forgot to mention at the beginning is that uh, in Dave's introduction is, of course, that you're the lead guitarist and have been for about nine years with Van Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, how did all that begin? How, how does Van Morrison ring you up one day and say, hey, will you come play with me? Or do you, um, or do you ring him? I, no, no, it didn't work, work, work quite like that with Van. Um, well, uh, he was looking for a new guitar player, and he, I think he said some previous, his previous guitar player was leaving and had left. And I would be very friendly and work a lot with Paul Moore, his bass player, who's from Dublin. And uh, he recommended me to Van. Van was saying, do you know of anyone, do you know any guys who would be suitable? So Paul said, there's this guy down, Limerick, Dave Keery and Van said, I never heard of him, and because he's quite attuned as to what's going on, you know, he's always got his ear to the ground for new players and, you know, he's, he's, he's a bit of a radar. So, uh, so there was an audition, kind of an audition, basically, it was in my studio, it was basically Paul, Paul Moore, the bass player, and Paul Moran, who was Dan's musical director at the time and still is, the keyboard player. So he flew over from London and we entered my studio, chose about 18, 22 songs, just to run over live straight into into my mixing board and no vocals or anything, but Van just wanted to get a sense of where I was at. You know, did I fit? Was I a good fit? Feel wise, I mean, feel is it's it's is is his uh, is his benchmark really? You know, I mean, I've been there nine years and I just absolutely absolutely love it. It came at a great time because uh, even though I was quite busy in the studio, I was doing less and less guitar playing, not as much as I would like. I was doing you know some local gigs and the odd overseas thing but the the balance as i was explaining earlier on guys the balance had kind of shifted mm-hmm. insofar as like i said i just spending more time on the keyboard and the mouse and i just started to become resent a bit resentful even though i was making a living uh but the, getting the gig done in a van was pretty much kind of a, a reawakening of kind of going back to 14 or 15 years of age like you're saying richard of you know, why did I start the guitar in the first place? You know, you know, this is the buzz. This is this is why. This is what it's all about. Yeah, uh, I find that really. I find, I find that really interesting, Dave, because it's it's actually the same thing that so many businesses really struggle with. Mm. You know, we work with a lot of different business owners, and yeah. they build a very successful business. They could be fifteen years in. They've gone down a different track and actually have forgotten what they set out to do. And the right personality is is a huge, huge important and huge important in, in music. Uh, and what I do is is making people feel relaxed in the studio uh, as a producer and facilitator and then with the band on the road getting on at people and it's the it, two of my kids for <laughs> for my wife's sins or my sins are, are musicians and I just, one of the first things I, I said to them you know get on with people it's the most important thing you yeah. can do no matter how, good, no matter how shit, shit hot you are as a, as a musician uh, you just you have to get on at people you know otherwise you, you will not survive you won't get the call for the next gig or the next job, um, and particularly if you're if you're traveling on the road or spending fourteen hours a day in the studio for two weeks, um, <laughs> get you know it's 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 crucial. 
Yeah, you, you've you've kind of answered a question I was going to ask to do with networking, um, and mm. you you know you've answered the how did you meet Van Morrison question by by basically saying you knew a fella who knew a fella. Yeah, and, uh, that that doesn't matter what the industry is, Tony. You you attest to that. Um, you know, you're as good as your last job, and if you did as good as your last job, somebody yeah. will say, "Hey, you know, you need to talk to that guy, Tony, because he does one, two, three. And mm-hmm. I think that's you know, I'm in touch with a million businesses and often talk to guys, and invariably it's down to that networking. You know, if if you're sitting at home and you can't do that, particularly when it's it's the basis of your business, it must be difficult, yeah. particularly yeah. these days. Um, but just to go on, just on, on that for a minute, I was doing a bit of research and I went onto your Facebook page and saw all these fantastic exotic pictures of Las Vegas and all the rest. But the one that's that on the kettle back there, Richard. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that really interested me was Forest Hills. Um, I saw Talking Heads in Forest Hills in 1983. That. What's that, that say? Oh, there you go. I didn't know that. <laughs> Dave is showing us a picture of his Forest Hills 2015 t-shirt. Um, but I was there in 1983 as a student uh, and very um, inexperienced one at that. And we ended up in Forest Hills to see Talking Heads during that Stop Making oh, Sense tour. Do you remember they did a movie of it? And um, I remember the buzz. I think in, I've seen a lot of gigs. Um, I'd say it's in my top five of all time. So I was tickled this morning when I was going through your, your photographs and I found that you played there as well. And can yeah, you talk us a through? A few times. Yeah. A few times? Wow. Yeah. Can you talk us through from your perspective, you know, when you're in an audience looking up at a band on, on, a, on, a, on a stage, you know, you have a particular perspective. But I know even in... The, I, um, I've done a little bit of this, let's say, with a local band. We purely play for the crack in pubs. Mm. And looking out from the band's perspective at the audience, you see all kinds of stuff. Some, sometimes it's very amusing. It puts you right off when you're playing because there's someone down the front doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Um, but, you know, I can't imagine what it must be looking out from the stage in Forest Hills at all these very high uh, stands that's in that particular yeah, place. Yeah. It used to be a tennis club, was it? It was. It was it's where the first uh, American U.S. tennis open used to, used to, was to, used to take place. And there's, yeah. there's tennis club, there's, yeah, there are tennis club things still attached to it. Um, it was closing for good enough. Does that not spook you when you come on stage? You know, there's some other, let's say... I tell you what, you know what spooks, me, what's, what spooks me more, Richard, is, is walking onto a tiny stage in, in Ronnie Scott's, we say, jazz club in London, and the band are like that close together, and <laughs> you're punters are literally you can see the whites of their eyes and the hairs in the nostrils right in front of you that's yeah. more that can be a bit more nerve-wracking because it's more there's an intensity um yeah certainly the first few times i see i'd, I'd done an awful lot of big shows and big arenas with uh, michael flatley even though it was a different it was a musical and it was a show mm. and for the most part the band were kind of in the shadows and brought down stage now and again to make make ages of themselves with, with michael and tell me this: um, Does the, from a tech perspective, do do the um, the sound? What's the word I'm looking for? Infrastructures is that the word? You know, the, the, is the sound different no, in Henderson Square Garden to Forest Hills to Ronnie Scott's to wherever? Well, it's the it, gear yeah, I'm thinking about. Certainly, open air is always kind of a difficult one because you've got it. The problem with Van or someone like Van is that he's not a rock and roll act, and he doesn't like really loud. An awful lot of PA systems that are based now on, would say, like what are called sub bass and bass drivers, bass, bass bigs, bass bins, so you can get the huge bottom end of that, all that energy. He doesn't like that. 
He's he's more kind of of the Ray Charles school and kind of it's, it's kind of a jazzy feel these days. It's a jazzy exactly. It's a jazzy bluesy feel. You know, there's a bit of kind of rock now and again, uh, sort of of sorts. But he doesn't like that full on and doesn't like he can. He's got he's very attuned to hearing if the PA is too low because you can hear it coming back at you. So and a, a lot of that so it does vary from gig to gig and and it's certainly dependent on a really good you know, your front of house engineer out of the guy the front mixing the sound. So he doesn't drive the sub basses too much, and a lot of engineers like to do that because they get energy, and you know, you get a huge bass drum and a massive bass guitar, and it's all that energy. It, and sonically, that doesn't suit us. Okay. So, so yeah, from venue to venue, it's it can be hugely problematic. Like I say, Forest Hills, and I'm just thinking of Forest Hills as an example. Insofar as the the tour, the last time I played, that we we were touring with Willie Nelson, and uh, and Tedeschi Trucks. I mean, it was fantastic. It was a four or five band lineup. Um, so we're playing a lot of arenas and what, what they call sheds in America so basically they're like it's like semi-enclosed arenas um, and you know basically with a hot with a tin roof and yeah. then the back the back of the arenas are open they're actually exposed and then there's normally a, a grass bank so people can sit up there so the so you could have four or five thousand inside in the closure or six thousand and then another double that again all, all out the back and obviously the, the states can facilitate that with the weather so those places can be really problematic acoustically it just sounds like a, it sounds like a fucking just like a racket in a warehouse you know yeah. just sound is just going all over so that, could, that could be really bad and then so what you also need then what's more crucial for the artist on stage in a band is a really good monitor engineer and the monitor engineer is a separate engineer you know nearly like another co-pilot another engineer on an aircraft that he's, you've got a whole separate, complete independent sound system uh, with speakers in front of you um, and around you with, with with the mix exactly that you want to hear. So he's got complete control. You can say, okay, I'm, I'm hearing too much of the back of vocals. I want that down. I need the piano up. So it's completely independent from front of house. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's become more sophisticated even now with in-ear monitors, which has been kind of happening for the last 20 years. and has like really Martin there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the oh. inner monitors where the, where the you know they'll take an, an actual silicon mold of your, yeah. of your ear yeah. and then and design put the the, the drivers uh, inside them and they're you know they could be up to a couple of grand a piece. What are you hearing so, in those? What are you hearing in those? You're, hearing, fascinating. You're, hearing all the, you're hearing all the music. Now we don't use them in band hates them, and I actually don't like them myself. Right, because uh, it, it literally isolates you completely. Of course. Of course. Do you know what it is, Tony, from the little experience I have of this is the funny thing you might not understand is when you're in a band on a stage, you actually sometimes can't hear the other instruments. You can only hear your own, maybe, mm. or you can hear too much of one. Maybe it's the drums. The drums, because of the type, the type of instrument it is, can be very loud and difficult yeah, to vary the volume. So yeah. what you have on the stage, if you've ever watched gigs, is these little kind of miniature speakers that face and they're called monitors and it allows funnily enough the musicians if i'm right dave i'm sure you'll correct me but it allows the musician to hear what they're playing if you understand which is quite different to what the audience is hearing totally different absolutely completely different to what what the audience Mm -hmm. are hearing yeah yeah so i mean normally you will get you will get a mix you get a smorgasbord you know a mix of everyone so you can hear you because you have to hear everyone so you can play as an ensemble yeah and and you know it's it's crucial as you all but sometimes you might want to hear too much of a particular instrument because uh, you can hear enough of it i mean i wouldn't need 
I wouldn't need bass guitar really in my monitor because Paul is right beside me and I'm getting enough of his amp. You can hear him. I, I can hear him. And it's a very quiet gig. It's one of, it's one of the quietest gigs I've ever done in my life. Like yeah. my amp doesn't go past one and a half or two. doesn't Boy. go to left like final tap. But, yeah. but it's, it's, it's such a quiet gig. Um, and it's, and it's, it's a gig like Vans is, is all about dynamics. Um, is right. being able to bring it right down to such a quiet level and, and, and then to bring it somewhere else dynamic. And then, Dave, you moved to obviously working uh, with with Michael Flatley, which is which mm. is very, very different, a different sense of energy again, completely. Yeah. Um, how did you how did you enjoy that experience? I really enjoyed it. It was it's, it was great work. I mean, I mean, uh, that whole period of time when Riverdance exploded, um, and you had three or four troops of Riverdance, three different companies touring the world, and the same with Lord of the Dance. Um, and I would have been musical director for a few years in that, and I would have been kind of integral of recommending and not semi-auditioning, but uh, recommending musicians and and uh, for for other for the other bands needed for the shows. Uh, it was a great it was a great work. It was a great experience, and it was a fantastic way to see the world and build up your CV and gave people a lot of some kind of financial security for a number of years in in, in a business that's precariously and, and notoriously precarious as in terms of consistency of earning. So, yeah, I learned an awful lot. I learned an awful Mike, Michael. I mean, for all the bad, you know, the flack and press he gets, he's an absolute pro and, you know, extremely driven. I was very fortunate to have worked in some fantastic studios in Europe um, and worked with some amazing producers. And I was always in- interested in the process of it, you know. I mean, that's going to some of the great great studios in the UK and then Mountain Studios in Montreux in Switzerland where we did the Choose a Blue album, Richard. And saw that, yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah Dave, Dave Richards was the engineer and producer and he'd, he'd done all Bowie's, loads of Bowie stuff and Queen's record and Queen owned the studio and Emerson Lake and Palmer and yes, he did. He was just a great engineer and that old school, just fucking brilliant ears and you know, yeah. the whole thing about you know, get, choosing the right microphone and moving it an inch forward or an inch back can have a huge crucial bearing of the sound rather than, oh, I just... Yeah, press a button. Get, I just hit that piece of software and software will cure it all. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not all about that. It's about, it's about listening, you know. Yeah, it talks back to what you said earlier, Martin, actually to do with the difference between live music and real musicians compared to computer stuff. Yeah. Computer-generated stuff. But yeah. um, just I, as you... Sorry. Sorry, yeah, sorry for cutting across you. I was just thinking, Dave, while you were talking, has much changed? I mean, you get a call, you're going on tour with Van Morrison. I mean, how many guitars typically would you bring? What equipment would you bring with you? This is the nerd in me asking these questions. He doesn't questions. bring yeah. any, he told me. He's got, he's got people, you know. <laughs> I, don't oh, bring I bring nothing. <laughs> I just, I, I, don't, I don't bring anything, actually. No, because everything's there. The production is there, and the production travels... I was uh, I met a friend last last year in New Orleans. Uh, he's the production manager for um, Katy Perry. But they've they're forty two trucks in the road, like <laughs> forty two trucks, yeah, or for forty eight. Yeah, that's nearly as bad as you, Richard, in your band. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I do? You know what I hate about this whole thing, this whole band thing, is that you turn up and you bring out bring along your own. Dave doesn't can't relate to this at all because he has people, but I have, I have no people. I am our people. I listen. I, I, my, I my amp, which has taken the arm out of me. I got to drag stuff around enough times in a, a million wires. I've been done that. And then at the end of the gig, you've had a good gig. You've had a few pints. It's lovely, and you, all you want to do is sit down and have a few more pints. But the public is trying to keep 
So now you've got to pack up all this bloody gear, there's a million wires yeah. and things to lug around the place and microphones and all that crap. It takes the, it takes the crap no, out of it. No, no, no matter how long I'm doing this and I'm 56 years of age, I, it's still the part of the process I hate is packing up. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, was, it was like Liam Gallagher um, uh, put up a post on Twitter last year, the year before it went viral. He was making himself a cup of tea and he was recording and he said, I used to have people to do this for me. Now I've got to make yeah. my own cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dave still has those. I mean, he's too bashful there. But Martin, to answer the, to answer his question that, that he didn't answer, he has people, you know. He, he gets on a he gets on some fancy flight someplace, stays in a five star hotel, arrives on stage, and some guy has set it all up for him. I mean, Thirty seven guitars, all tuned correctly. And one guitar. One isn't tuned. He gives the guy a smack in the back of the head and says, "Hey, you didn't tune that third one correctly." That's what it. Yeah. yeah. What do you do, Dave? He's what normally there behind me with the ostrich feathers and a bunch of grapes. <laughs> 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 he's got his he's got his chiropodist uh, toe clippers at, at hand as well. <laughs> um, what I was going to ask you is, uh, it strikes me there must be a lot of downtime when you're on the road. I mean, the gig yeah. is at eight o'clock, and your sound check is at four, is it or something? Figuratively and, and literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> downtime. Yeah. If, yeah. If, if there, it's that's that's. That's the real test of 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 you being equipped for the road is mentally is the downtime. It's yeah. like years ago when the Stones were doing their twenty fifth anniversary, which was God knows that that's decades ago now. And Charlie Watts was asked, "Well, what does it feel like to be twenty five years with the Stones?" And he says, "Well, it's been five years making music and twenty years hanging around." Yeah, and that's that's kind of it, really. Because I mean, you have two hours on stage a night. No, you have a sound check as well. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's the downtime. It's, it's finding time like. Um, I prefer to be kind of working and gigging, you know. But but Van won't do more than three in a row. He doesn't tour. He doesn't tour anyway per se. Um, like in 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 like the way Dylan would or, or most acts would, where they go for months and an end. You could you could fly out on a Friday, play Bristol Saturday, and Cardiff and Manchester on Sunday. You're home on Monday. That kind of thing. No, we go to the states. It's a minimum of two weeks because it has to be more financially uh, viable to do that. So they would say like every year we go to Vegas, we're not doing it this year, obviously, or next year, but, um, you know, you do five, seven shows in Caesars Palace and that could be spread over 11, 12 days or 11 days and then go to San Francisco then or whatever, somewhere else, Florida for another few shows. Do the band tend to hang around together or do you? Oh, we would, yeah. We can go to go off, go for a stroll or, you know, meet up for a bite to eat or for a pint. Yeah. But, but sometimes then people want their own space and you got to respect that. People are, you don't hear from someone and someone goes off on a walk on their own and, and that's absolutely fine because you, you, it becomes a little village. Yeah. Like when, when it was with Flatley, a show like that, like, uh, or Riverlands or any of those shows where there's a large scale, it's a lot more intense than so far as you could be. I was there four years and you could be on the road minimum of 250 days a year. Really? Two, oh, that's 240. Intense. Yeah, and you could be doing eight or nine shows a week Whereas a van, you could be doing three, four max a week, yeah. you know, and you'd be moving and moving a lot. I mean, and, you know, you could be Berlin three nights in, you know, following the morning into the bus and, you know, off to Hamburg. Or it's, it was very intense. I found that last year was flatly just, uh, just, yeah, just difficult. You, you kind of start to kind of go up here. It's like, I'm, I'm having enough of this, even though just yeah, it does get wearing, and you're away from your family. Your kids are small, and you know there's sacrifices to make. Uh, you know, no more than if if you're a business person or 
someone working for GPA and you're, <laughs> you're up in the air half the time and it sounds sounds glamorous or if you're a people don't see that, people don't see that bit though Dave sure they don't see that, that bit yeah or if you're an active duty in the Lebanon you know it's it's yeah. it's, a it's like anything there's there are sacrifices to be made and, and it's sure you can have some great experience and great crack now and again but it just at the end of the day like you go back to your hotel room and you're on your on your own and you're on your own in your head so it really depends on the personnel that are around you and the conditions yeah um, but it isn't jesus it's i'm, I'm not complaining yeah <laughs> it's funny to, to go back on something you said earlier there i remember meeting brendan Keeley. do you know brendan um, yeah you brought him down to the studio one day i did you did yeah that's Alzheimer's. Though. You're getting old. That's the start of the I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but I, he, was work, he was working on this musical project. And musical was, it was actually very good. The, and you, you brought him down to meet me. Now that you say it, I do remember it. Um, yeah. yeah. The thing with Brendan was, um, and, and it really tickled me, because he, he, he knew my brother or something, and he said to Robin, he said, um, any chance I could sit down with Richard for a few hours just to discuss the business side of his business? And mm. for the, don't know Brendan uh, was quite a successful uh, singer songwriter and um, but he it was I'm very surprised when he came in because you, you, you saw him in the in the media I guess you saw him with the you know the album covers and you, you mm-hmm. saw stuff about him and, and he had a couple of singles in the charts and all that kind of stuff and I was surprised to hear that um, really he still wasn't making a lot of money or um, couldn't seem to get outside of the contract that he had, which restricted him to the island yeah. only and not yeah. outside of the island. Mm. And I think what he was looking for was some business steers in relation to that contract, which I won't, which I won't go into. But sure. um, I was, I was very surprised at you know the razzmatazz that we see on stage, and we've had a fantastic gig, and we've had a few jars, and we're still talking about Talking Heads forty years later. Um, behind it is actually a business. It is um, a business, and it's and it's like any business; it can be cutthroat. There it is. Uh, particularly the thing with uh, contracts; it's like so many artists have been screwed by by uh, by contracts and bad contracts, you know. And it's it's telling you know it's gotten better in some ways, insofar as artists do have to you know legally have to have representation. Whereas back in the day, you know, you'd have hooky record company guys or publishing guys or managers you know getting the artist to sign sign a contract and the bonnet of a car after a gig like and you know yeah. that and they wouldn't people wouldn't realize they'd be tied in in memoriam time memoriam so that side was good but the other side is just the business is still as rootless and you really got to be aware Definitely. and when you were saying someone like brendan being tied into a territory it's unbelievable i mean i did i knew of someone who was doing a particular one of these TV talent shows, shall we say? I'm not going to say what it was. And he was getting towards the final heats. He was a uh, pit to win it. He didn't, which was lucky for him because he was going to be tied in for a contract minimum of ten years. Wow. And not only that, they wanted they want a slice of everything. If this guy, who and he was very talented, more than a musician, he did acting as well. So what they call a three you probably know as business people a 360 degree so they want a slice of the whole pie mm-hmm. you know so you if you go into acting if you're merchandising oh. if your face is in a poster if you any every single facet of of your um of your of your worth uh that the, the company the record company and production company had a, had a, had a slice of for 10 years so you're you couldn't do anything yeah so if you if you um just 
creatively were exhausted after two or three years and then okay i want to get out there and start writing again and do other stuff and branch out you couldn't because the, you're 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 tethered yeah, so, I, yeah really I, be really the careful people yeah yeah, I remember one time way back in the day, I was on a flight to Amsterdam, one early morning flight, and I happened to sit beside the guy from Boyzone, what's the lead singer? Uh, Ronan Keating. Ronan Keating. Excuse me, Ronan Keating. And I was reading the newspaper, and they'd, they'd opened the Harrods uh, Christmas shop or something the night before, and I happened to read in the paper, he was sitting beside me, he was half snoozing, and... I'm looking at this and I mean, I couldn't just keep looking at this and the guy sitting beside me. So I said, um, I said, you've been busy. I couldn't believe that that night, I think it was eight o'clock he had, the previous night he'd been in London doing that. And we mm. were on a flight at seven o'clock in the morning to Amsterdam. Yeah. And what struck me was, um, and the rest of the guys in the band were all fast asleep around me in, in that section of the aircraft. Yeah. And um, I said, so what, what are you doing? He says, well, we're flying to Amsterdam. He said, I've got an interview to do at the airport. And then we fly on to Singapore where they're going to do two gigs. Yeah. And during the day, they were going to do several uh, interviews with TV and radio stations and stuff. And then they were going to fly back three days later to Dublin to do something else that they were doing in Dublin. Mm. And I thought, geez, this is the most unexotic thing I've ever oh, seen yeah. in my life. No, you're, you're just... slavery. It is slavery. And it's when... when Bands, when bands get successful like that, I mean, particularly kind of pop bands, the demands are huge in them, you know, to, to make purpose, you know, personal appearances, interviews, and then some like Boys On and Westlake, they, they would have had a big, very big following and still do in, in Asia. Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of traveling is, is grueling and then they're back in the studio and they're doing more personal appearances. So it's a, you know, so you can understand why so many people burn out yeah. and there's no, there's no consideration because the record company and management are flogging them. It's okay for them. They're in their offices yeah. and they dispatch road managers and tour managers and minders to go, to go with the artists, but they're, um, they're, they're, it's, it's just like fodder. One of one of my favorite bands in the world, and arguably they're probably one of the biggest bands in the world at the moment, would be Coldplay. Uh, go and go and see them their show in uh, in Wembley uh, two or three years ago. It, it was phenomenal. But their documentary came out a few months ago on Amazon Prime, which charters the story all the way back to when they first started in university. And it actually the videographer they have has been with them for this whole journey, so okay. pieces the whole thing together. And it 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 talks exactly about all of those challenges, Dave, that you're discussing, but how they had to reinvent themselves along the journey in order to. Be able to react to what the market was looking for without yeah. losing their own true sense of identity and i think they brought in people like brian eno and people like that to help mm. them you know create new music create but, new music yeah that's that's and they've, they've managed to do that very successfully just can i get can i ask you about something you're talking about record contracts and stuff there um and, and i hope you want to talk about it i'm sure you do uh the whole tuesday blue episode which was i guess about what five seven years you were you were um in existence i suppose is the word um yeah how, how did so, that start and how did what happened um well it started just kind of trying to condense as much as i can it basically started with uh with ralph lintime and mike ryan the bass player and singer doing stuff out in ralph's studio at mungret and writing and uh and doing some gigs as a two-piece, and then they brought me in as a kind of a third person, and we used to gig on Killaloo, that, that bar beside the, the bridge there. What you call it? The water. Uh, the Ballinat side. Um, beside the bridge, was it Molly's? Right in the bridge. What? Molly's, I think. Molly's, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Rough, rough and ready. But um, uh, so we got signed then to EMI America, 
and which was kind of we thought it was a good thing at the time, you know, a huge, massive American record label, part of Capitol Records, part of the EMI Group worldwide. And but you can get you can get swallowed up and <laughs> very quickly along with the other three dozen acts that they signed and being jungled around. And that was a problem there where, you know, I think we were signed in 86 and then we didn't start to get records till 88. So at that time, the songs, we were kind of, I'm not saying we were done with the songs, but we were kind of writing other material and ready to move on. Um, and it just kept on being put back and put back and gestation and time isn't right, bloody blah, blah, blah. So when we came to recording, it was a fantastic experience. And, working with someone like Dave Richards in, in Montreux in Switzerland and you know we were all young lads in our 20s and it was you know it was a good buzz and you know really big budget behind the the record although <laughs> the, the artists the band members don't see that you're on a 70 or 80 quid a week retainer that's it oh, yeah you know, the money the money goes elsewhere to the studios and the producers yeah. and the, the uh, video makers and the whole lot so we did the album and finished finished the album in 80, 88 early 88 and then it didn't get released until early 89. And that was so frustrating. And that happens a lot. Well, Tony, it's funny. You and I did a podcast a few months ago, which we called Time Kills a Deal. Mm. And it's a, a mantra that I keep beating out into businesses that I've uh, and still am involved with. And essentially, it means that unless you strike while the iron is hot, you can lose the impetus or lose the opportunity. And it's, it's very interesting to hear Dave say exactly the same thing in a completely different mm-hmm. world to the ones that you and I occupy. You know, unless you can get out there quick, unless you can take those opportunities and push whatever it is you're doing now, the impetus can be lost and time kills the deal. There's, there's two, two last things that I'd like to add. Um, the first is the Jimmy Page story. And if I can just preface it a little bit, I, I, I remember we were all... You talked about albums there before, Martin, under your arm. It was very cool to have the latest, whatever it was. So you'd save and you'd save and you'd save up a fiver and you'd buy the latest album by, let's say, Led Zeppelin, because it helps my story here. And Mm -hmm. you'd have Led Zeppelin under your arm and that was that. Now, the difference was that Dave was actually playing Led Zeppelin when the rest of us were trying to do the Moody Blues. And uh, as I say, Nights in White Satin or or, um, what was it, Heart of Gold. Dave Dave was doing Stairway to Heaven with his eyes closed, you know, while drinking a pint of beer. Um, So that was the difference. But um, I have to say I was very chuffed, and I'm going to embarrass you here, when I saw a picture of um, Dave on stage, I think it might have been Madison Square Garden with with your arm around Jimmy Page or standing beside Jimmy Page, who, for those who don't know, those too old to know is... No, that was in Belfast. Was that Belfast? Well, I have to say I was chuffed. It was fantastic to see it after so many years. Here was the guy who used to be playing these things and we're walking the streets at age 14, and now he's standing beside the guy. Fantastic. Yeah, it was a great buzz. Great buzz to meet him. And I have to say he was a really, really nice guy. And I met him... He's, yeah, he's been at a few a few events of gigs and um, met him in Belfast and met him in London and twice in London where oh, we were doing the, the London Blues Festival as well. So and so I got to play on stage with Jeff Beck and record with Jeff Beck as well. Did well. you really? Wow. Yeah. Um, and Jimmy was at that as well. And, you know, it was kind of unusual to be walking down the corridor and then hear this voice behind you. Dave, how are you, Dave? Good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to us all the time. We, we don't find uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> So I mean, yeah, I just of course I had to tell him. I'm sure he he met him. 
I'm always interested to hear that that's that last sentence there. You know, you get this impression somehow, maybe through the media, that that people are different because they're doing some particular job, mm. and then you know, it's almost um, well, you know what I met whoever it was. I met Michael Schumacher, and you know what he was a very nice guy. It was almost like that's a big surprise. I mean, all yeah. the guy is doing is a job, and is a job exactly job he does, and the job he's very good at. Um, so we always ask. We have a thing called the Tech Post lexicon. And that right. is um, all very fancy people like you. We ask them, uh, business people, or whoever it is we interview, we ask them for what we call their secret sauce. And the secret sauce is something that it, it can be anything. It can be what you live by, um, any overriding thing that, you know, you like, um, et cetera. Um, is there any one thing from the music perspective or Dave Keery's perspective that you live by or that you'd like to say? Um. I just I just love music. I love making making and playing good music. And as a as a player, and just I, I'm still I'm still fascinated by it, and I still get excited by, it and I still want to be a better player than I was ten years ago, twenty years, thirty years ago. Many thanks to everybody, Tony, Martin, Dave, of course, and uh, Dave. Hopefully, I'll see you and Tom Collins on Christmas Eve for a hopefully that'll happen. Absolutely, be great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, all the best. And thanks very much. Thanks, thanks, guys. All the best. Bye now. So that's it for this month's Tech Post. Don't forget, there'll be a new episode on the first Thursday of every month. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, don't forget to hit the like and share buttons. And remember, it's just tech. It's not rocket science.